The role of high-stakes testing in K-12 education is a very, to put it lightly, hot topic right now. Massachusetts is starting its semi-regular process of reconfiguring the MCAS exam, which is required for students up to 8th grade, but also has a 10th grade test that determines not only students' graduation eligibility, but also whether schools need additional state oversight or control. At the same time, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, which is the state's largest teachers union, is pushing both a ballot measure and backing legislation that would remove that MCAS graduation requirement. But what goes in its place then? Why remove it in the first place? And what role broadly does testing even serve in education? I'm Jennifer Smith of Commonwealth. To help me explore those questions, I'm joined by Jack Schneider, the Dwight W. Allen Distinguished Professor at UMass Amherst College of Education. Jack, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. So since you've been on last time, you co-authored a book with Ethan Hutt titled Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning. We will get to that title in a minute. But first, you don't just say what the problems are. You also explain how grades, standardized tests, and report cards, uh, what you call assessment technologies, serve real needs too. And it might seem obvious, but maybe so obvious we don't always think about it. Why do we have grades and tests? Uh. Okay, good question. Well, as it turns out, um, these assessment technologies, as uh, as you alluded to, you clearly did your homework here, serve multiple different purposes. And, you know, like so many things in education, I think that if we think about them, they become obvious to us, right? But we so often don't think about them because they are a part of what scholars David Tyack and Larry Cuban referred to as the grammar of schooling. They're just part of what we expect in a quote-unquote real school. But let's think about what these technologies do. One of the things they do is they communicate information, right? So it turns out we actually do need something to allow educators to communicate with students in this very immediate way about how they're doing, to communicate with families. So whereas with students, you might be able to do something at a small scale just through face-to-face -face communication, communicating with families becomes a little bit more challenging. And then there's this longer distance kind of communication that happens with college admissions officers or employers. And so these are the kinds of things we want to be thinking about as we are trying to create better technologies, because one of the things that Ethan and I talk about in the book is how many problems there are with grades and test scores and transcripts as measures of what students know and can do. But we do want to be thinking about communication. We want to be thinking about a second thing, which is motivation, right? We compel students by law to be in school in this country. And in our state, we compel them to be there for a long time. And as it turns out, school is school, right? And many students would rather be almost anywhere else than school. So one of the things that we need to think about in education is how to motivate young people. Now, there are lots of ways to try to motivate them, but we have used grades, test scores, and transcripts as a kind of extrinsic motivation, right? Focus, pay attention, show up, or else. And we do want to motivate students, but probably there are better ways to do it. But regardless of what we end up choosing, we do need to have that on our radars as we're thinking about what can we do better than we do presently. And then finally, we want to be thinking about the kind of way that our system, our non-system really, 
is stitched together. So, you know, you could call that articulation or synchronization. We call it both at various points in the book. But really, how do you take, let's say, you know, a student from one district and allow that student to move to another? How do you allow students to move from elementary school to middle school to high school and then on to a different kind of system into higher education. How can we create information systems that allow these relatively independent and relatively autonomous components of our non-system to function together as if they are a system? And again, there are better ways to do it, but we can't just wish away grades, test scores, and transcripts because they do serve these purposes. And it is, of course, all in the context of the great debate over MCAS right now here in Massachusetts. The question about not only uh, how we design and use the required test for plenty of lower grade levels, but also its place in the role of uh, thinking about graduation requirements in terms of receivership. So it seems like it's interacting with a lot of those functions that you're raising here, not just how are the students doing compared to themselves, how are the districts doing compared to each other, but also whether or not they're able to uh, move out of those schools at all. So can you break down a few ways that you're seeing not just the testing purpose at play here in Massachusetts, but also a few of the pitfalls that you alluded to? Yeah, so if we think just about the use of test scores, so let's table, you know, the the permanent record, right, the transcript, let's table grades. So there are these immediate impacts for students. And here in Massachusetts, one of them is that if you don't earn a quote-unquote passing score on MCAS, it becomes very difficult to earn a high school diploma, which is the basic entry-level credential into our economy. And, you know, if test scores were a perfect measure of what students know and can do, then I think we would have reason for a more complex debate here about whether we actually should be granting these credentials to folks who then, you know, it could be argued pretty responsibly don't possess the skills. But if we say, well, you know, MCAS doesn't necessarily really fully measure what students know and can do, right? It's a pretty narrow target there. And, you know, can we then say that a student who hasn't earned the passing score on MCAS therefore does not have the kind of knowledge and skills that we would want a high school graduate to possess? I have a lot of questions about that. And I particularly have questions if we are then going to say, hey, there's this really serious consequence for you. Like, you might not be able to get a pretty basic job as a result of this. Now, there are other ways to try to earn the degree. But I think it's important that we recognize that degrees, when they are not granted, are disproportionately denied to students from low-income families, students of color, students from families where English is not the language spoken in the home. And I think we need to exercise a lot of caution when we know that there is disproportional harm to communities like that. And we could talk further about the use and abuse of test scores. But I think the main thing for 
me is that, you know, all of us as stakeholders in the public education system here, and, and all of us are, whether or not we've got kids in the schools, right? We pay for education with our tax dollars for a reason. We all benefit from the existence of public education and the reliance on test scores really, you know, it exists for a reason. We want to know how the schools are doing. We do want to hold each other accountable for results in public education, but we're getting really thin information there. And we could go into the history, but instead I'll just point people to the book and say, if you want to know why we use standardized tests instead of a whole array of different kinds of options, it's somewhere in the book. Well, so exactly to that point, and uh, again, everyone should go read the book rather than listen to us uh, recap it for uh, hours at a time. But so one of these critiques around using standardized testing in Massachusetts, at least, almost entirely as the basis for determining whether or not you're graduation eligible. So plenty of states have, for instance, standards that are a combination of testing or other requirements. But Massachusetts has kind of an interesting structure here where we have a lot of local control about what the curriculum is. But then ultimately, we have this sort of one end-all, be-all metric here. So talk to me a little bit about how that ends up impacting the way that teachers have to teach and the way that students have to think about the role of testing in their schools. We can think about not just the impact of the graduation requirement here, but also the impact of standardized testing in grades three through eight, as well as 10th grade, which is the year that matters most for students earning their diplomas. Schools are held accountable by the state for test results in all of those years. And the impact then is going to be most acutely felt in schools that feel pressure to raise their test scores. Now, if we think about the theory of change here, right, that if we hold schools accountable, if we hold students accountable for results on standardized tests, we will therefore see higher scores, right? The theory of change there really does center around the idea that people aren't trying their hardest, right? That what they need is a little bit more pressure. They need a sword hanging over them. And I think that that doesn't actually square with what we know about teachers and students, right? And especially teachers who we know get into the business not because they are going to be well remunerated, but rather because they want to make a difference in kids' lives. They aren't hiding their best lesson plans in their desks, right? So if that is what we know about the system, then probably to me it makes a lot more sense to have a system in which we are really just focused on building capacity, right? If the scores aren't there, there probably is a reason for it, and we have have lots of educational research that suggests that the chief reason is going to be the kind of out-of-school opportunity gaps that we see along the lines of family income, race, language, immigration status, special education status, and then for educators, things like training, years on the job, etc. Now, if we then get to your question and say, okay, 
people are probably already trying their hardest, right? So that theory of change for me is not going to hold water. I don't think we're then going to see people applying themselves more, therefore producing more learning, therefore raising student standardized test scores. I think what we are instead going to see is a variety of gaming practices ranging from the relatively harmless, right? Holding an assembly before MCAS where everybody's engaging in a kind of test-oriented pep rally, not what I want my kids spending her time doing in school, but probably not one that is denying her a whole lot of educational opportunity. But we can move all the way to the what I would consider very serious, right? That would be narrowing of the curriculum, reducing the number of minutes that students receive instruction in non-tested subjects, and the most consequential effects would be for things like art and music education. And we can also expect other kinds of negative unintended consequences like teaching to the test. And again, if we had a kind of perfect instrument here that really did a great job of capturing what students know and can do, then it, it wouldn't be such a terrible thing to teach to the test. But we do know this is a pretty limited instrument, right? This is, for the most part, a machine-scored multiple-choice test. Now, not every question is machine-scored multiple-choice. But if we say, gosh, that really is because of convenience, right? That's a matter of efficiency, not a matter of, you know, measuring what students know and can do in an ideal way then again, I think we really need to take those negative unintended consequences into consideration. I am curious because uh, proponents of the MCAS from a, I guess we would call it a communication function here, say that it does tell us some important things later on. Uh, they point a lot at, for instance, the connection between uh, later educational attainment, higher incomes, and MCAS's relationship to those scores. So I would kind of like to dig in a little bit into the question of, is that telling us something about the MCAS or is that telling us something about something else? Is talking about it in terms of income and later educational attainment as related to this 10th grade graduation requirement doing something useful or is it doing something that could be duplicated some other way? Yeah. So I think that there is no significant harm in continuing with MCAS provided that there aren't stakes or that the stakes are quite low or the exact opposite of high stakes, where actually resources follow low test scores because in my theory of change, right, when we see low test scores, what we ought to do is provide more capacity. Now, I think that people who are making the argument that MCAS is a predictor of things like higher income are really missing the bigger picture here, right? The best predictor of future income is current income. So if you want to know, you know, how are students going to be doing later in life financially, let, let's just look at their parents' bank accounts. Now, I don't think that's a particularly useful exercise for our schools to be engaged in. If we recall that roughly two-thirds of student standardized test scores are a reflection of out-of-school variables, and that only about one-third of student standardized test score averages are predicted by in-school variables, then we really need to back down on this claim that MCAS is telling us how our schools are doing. And again, I don't think this means we stop using MCAS, right? So 
people of my generation sat for standardized tests when they were elementary school students or middle school students, sometimes even high school students. And for the most part, we don't really remember those tests. Like I, I vaguely remember occasionally sitting for tests in California. And the reason it's only vague is because there was no consequence for me or my school based on the results. The results just informed folks at the state level about various levels of performance across the system. And I think there are some potential positive uses of that data, including for paying attention to things like achievement disparities across racial lines, across language lines, across a variety of demographic variables that we should be paying attention to. I just don't think you get any of that positive stuff if what you say is there's going to be this serious consequence for you as a student or for you as a teacher or for a community's schools. I'm also a native Californian, so I also have a very fuzzy memory of the testing from when, <laughs> when I was a child there. So you testified on behalf of the Thrive Act here, which is one of several efforts that are ongoing to remove MCAS uh, as a requirement and basically alter the way that uh, schools are supposed to be treating graduation certifications. So I think I'll start a little bit before that, which is the question of why not just update the MCAS instead of working to remove it. You know, standards are updated regularly. The latest round, I had to go dig through the bid documents for for the new round of MCAS. Um, it includes addition of culturally responsive materials, presumably to address some of those inequity concerns. So the way that folks are talking about amending the MCAS seems to also be in line with some of the uh, thinking around why it might be failing to uh, do the things that we would like it to do. So let's start a little bit broader, which is why not update? Why remove the requirement? Or is the answer both? <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is both, right? That we should always be working to build better assessments. And I think we need to work backwards from what our ultimate values are. We shouldn't lead with assessment and then try to shoehorn our values into a current assessment regime. So let's consider the graduation requirement. What do we actually want high school graduates to know and be able to do? And where is the line where we collectively, as residents of the Commonwealth, are willing to say, we are going to deny you a diploma because there is a risk to all of us if you go walking around in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts presenting yourself as a high school graduate. I think if we think of it that way, it becomes a lot harder to defend a system in which we deny students diplomas based on the results of a single standardized test. So let's actually think about what we want. And that is a part of the Thrive Act as well. And that's the part that I spoke to is this third element, which is to create a commission that would basically rethink how we are assessing school quality. So the way that I talk about this is always to say, let's start with what we value. What do we want schools in the Commonwealth to do for everyone? And let's think about this, not just from the perspective of parents and caregivers to young people, but also from the perspective of citizens who are paying for public education with our tax dollars. What do we want those young people to be coming out of the school 
individuals knowing and being able to do. I think it's a lot, right? I think it includes things like being active and engaged citizens. I think it includes things like having opportunities to interact with young people who are not from the same socioeconomic background. And I think it includes things like access to creative and performing arts, to a full, rich, and varied curriculum, to all kinds of things that we associate with quote-unquote good schools and that we want for our own kids and that I want for every kid. And that then should shape the way that we are trying to assess school quality, whereas presently we assess school quality by looking at MCAS scores, attendance, graduation rates in the case of high school, uh, and progress towards English language proficiency for English language learners, right? That to me is not a complete school. Um, and it's particularly not a complete school if we know that most of those factors correlate with out-of-school variables like family income. So I think what we need is a rethink of how we are assessing school performance and also of how we are assessing what students know and can do. So thinking about the the thing that we both sort of alluded to before, which is that, you know, if you remove MCAS as a graduation requirement, there's now kind of no collective graduation requirement. So the issue is essentially, if we lose that, what do we do from there? Uh, the argument from proponents of MCAS say that it would uh, replace the statewide standard with basically 300 local standards. Uh, you talk in the book about, you know, trying to knit together a system that has a lot of local variation in it. So walk us through uh, briefly how kind of reforms to the assessment system could both have that sort of understandable, predictable set of standards while still allowing for you know, not just a one-size-fits-all MCAS requirement. What replaces MCAS in a way that leaves predictability? Yeah, so I am not going to sit around telling people that the college board should be our model for anything. However, however, I think that some of the elements of the advanced placement program do offer a kind of encouraging picture of what is possible in terms of measuring what students know and can do at scale. So if we look at some of the AP program classes that require students to assemble portfolios, and then if we look at the kind of validity and reliability statistics that we can get on the use of those portfolios and the scoring of those portfolios, to me what that suggests is that it's possible to have standards-aligned performance tasks, right, meaningful student work that gives you a whole lot more information about what students know and can do and that is more aligned with the curriculum, that is going to be more aligned with what students feel to be genuinely valuable and a part of their education, that I think that that is possible, right? We know it not just from the AP program, but also from places like the New York Performance Standards Consortium, where for a couple of decades, they have essentially had a performance assessment portfolio as a graduation requirement. I think that this also dovetails with some of what Ethan and I talk about in the book, which is that right now, Everything for a student comes down to what can fit on 
the permanent record, right? On a transcript where maybe you've got your AP scores, maybe you've got your SAT or ACT scores, and you've got your GPA, right? The, the grades that you earned in particular classes. Well, there are fewer characters on a transcript like that than there are in a Twitter post. And so to say, this is the information that you are going to carry forward with you, that's deeply problematic, right? And it's not just that we can theorize better systems. It's that we can look around and point to better ideas, especially now that we have technologies that will enable us to do things like create digital portfolios. We could have digital transcripts that allow college admissions officers or employers to double-click on a student's grade or their test score or their AP score to see actual evidence of student work there. And... I think we should think even more boldly about what is possible and what would be good for young people and their education to think about things like, well, you know, if we have these digital capabilities to do things like make a transcript double-clickable, couldn't we also make a transcript overwritable such that, you know, maybe a student didn't possess a particular competency in grade 10 but now possesses it in grade 11 or grade 12. Or maybe it's even, you know, in his or her first year as a community college student or in a four-year college. And that student could then conceivably go back in, complete the standard, upload work as evidence of having completed that standard in a way that I think would not only give us better information, but that would also advance the aim of equity because we know that we live in an unequal society. We know that students start off with headwinds or tailwinds as they are beginning their journeys through school. And so to say, hey, listen, let's create a system that allows students who have faced headwinds from outside of school to update their student records as they continue their learning journeys. I think that that's a really important thing for us to be thinking about. And there are all kinds of things that we can do that are like that, that don't say we're going to give up on communication or we're going to give up on motivation, we're going to give up on synchronization, but then instead say there's probably a better way to do this. Let's maintain our focus on those core purposes and let's think about how we might better get at them. The last thing that I want to touch on while I have you here is kind of the implications around teacher burnout. There's a teacher shortage here. Uh, of course, a lot of changes to testing regimes uh, that basically require more kind of participation and more work from teachers here can often then exacerbate both the shortage and the burnout itself. So uh, what is the sense here for what the impact would be on teachers to kind of shift over to a more kind of holistic and engaged method of testing? Yeah, I think that it won't be entirely easy, right? That for many educators, it will require more work, right? Learning how to use classroom embedded assessments in lieu of state standardized tests or to help students produce portfolios that might stand in for, you know, the transcript as we presently know it. 
that's going to be work. And so we can't simply dump this at the doorstep of educators and say, well, by and large, this is going to make your professional lives better. And so, you know, from a utilitarian standpoint, we can say this is a good thing. And if you don't like it, deal with it. I think instead we need to consider how is the training going to happen? When is it going to happen? How are educators going to be compensated? This is all part of a bigger project that we should all be focused on, which is how do we make teaching a sustainable profession? Because what we're hearing from educators right now, we're hearing it from them in terms of their use of voice, but we're also hearing it from them in terms of their use of exit from the profession as a way of sending a message. We're hearing that this profession is not rewarding, possible, or sustainable in the way that it may have previously been. Now, teaching has always been what David Cohen called an impossible profession, but I think there are things that we can do, whether it is freeing educators up from some of the non-instructional duties that they are contractually obligated to perform in schools, the smarter use of paraprofessionals, paying educators to work either more hours in the day, right, but, but compensating them for that or for time during the summer on things like professional development, curriculum construction, collaboration. I think there's a lot there that we should be focused on. And to draw this all the way back to our earlier conversation about MCAS, you know, there are folks who will make what to me is a really fantastical claim that we are where we are as a commonwealth in terms of our performance in public K-12 education because of MCAS. That's not true. We are where we are because of families and educators as well as because of the hard work of students themselves, right? And MCAS is just one kind of temperature check on that. And what we then need to do if we care about our really horrifying achievement gaps, and if we care about continuing to advance educationally as a commonwealth, we then need to be thinking about well, how can we make it more possible for families to support students? How can we make it more possible for educators to support students? And what can we do directly to support students themselves? Because we know those are the three factors where we should be focused if what we want is to increase student achievement and attainment. Thanks again to Jack Schneider. If our listeners want to hear more of your thoughts on this and other things, they can both find your book with Ethan Hutt, Off the Mark, or they can listen to your podcast with Jennifer Berkshire, Have You Heard? And to our listeners, we'll be back with you next week on the podcast. <laughs>